Welcome to the LA Realtor Podcast. I'm Paul with Great Builds. And I'm Sarah with Glen Oaks Escrow. And we're getting to know the industry one conversation at a time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. So uh, what did I want to give you a hard time about this morning? You have a vacation property, do you not? Yeah, second home. Cool. So you have a second home. Now tell me about your first home. It's an apartment. (laughs) (laughs) So you bought a second home before you bought your first home? I mean, to be fair, we live in Los Angeles, so it was Mm. more reasonable. Mm. It made more sense. You went straight to the second home. I also had a good opportunity. It was the cabin directly across the street from my mom's cabin that went up for sale. And it was like, well, somebody's got to buy it. And I was the only one who didn't have a mortgage. So you're that somebody. Yeah. Got a good deal. You have any plans for a third home before your first home? No. Okay. Not at the moment, but maybe I'll do a, you know, eighth of a share in a a Picasso or something like that. Picasso. That's a good plug. (laughs) Tell us about our guest today. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm excited to have our guest on. I've known him for a little bit of time here and uh, he's going to get into some, some interesting things that I'd like to learn about. So I want to welcome Bryant Brislin, who is a land broker at the Hoffman Company. He's been doing that for a while and we'd love to learn more. So welcome, Bryant. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for being here today. Of course. So tell us, our listeners are realtors. So they know how to transact things like homes. Mm-hmm. But I think most realtors or most brokers probably never in their career transact anything like land. So I'd love to learn about what you do and how that's different than your average realtor. Yeah. And real quick, I mean, I like to say a lot of, I would say, you know, Century 21 and Remax and Compass and Keller agents here and there, they do stumble across land and they're a little bit during the headlights and they can always call someone like me or other land brokers. Not there's a million of us and we're, we're here to help obviously. Yeah. Right. Well, tell us what it's like to do to broker land and how it's different. It's tough. I mean, it definitely has its pros and cons. I mean, the pros are you definitely feel like you're a bit more in creation mode and there's nothing like driving by something two, three years after you sold it and there's families living there now and a whole community especially on the deals where you were kind of like the initial impetus, meaning no one else was working on it. It was, it was either land or an exi- old bungalow court, whatever. And you were like, that would be cool with some small out single families and then blink your eyes three, four years later and they're there. But it is hard. The deals can be very complicated and time consuming. So I've been doing it a long time. And last year was a good year. I sold about, 70, about $71 million worth of land. But I am diversifying more. And I do have another company of wholesaling single-family investor properties in Texas. But I'll always do land. I just have to diversify a bit because it just it can be kind of mind-numbing, but at the same time, fun. So It's your specialty, right? This is what you've yeah, always hey, done? Yeah, at least I have a niche and there's only so many of us. I would say in LA, there's maybe three or four other guys, maybe five and one or two gals who they're the only kind of land brokers I can think of. But they also sell existing assets. So some of them, at least half, sometimes three-fourths of what they sell is existing assets. But they also consistently have some land. So to diversify is good. To do 100% land can be kind of tough. And you're kind of capped at what you can make because it's so much work. But the ROI isn't that great. Yeah, I'd love to educate folks a little bit on what it's like to broker land. I mean, when I was in development and you work for a lot of developers or with a lot of developers that are looking for land, you're not the kind of land broker that's selling, you know, a five acre parcel in the middle of the desert that's scrub brush. That's I don't think that's what you do. You sell infill land that's 
going to be available for development. But what I'd love for you to tell the listeners is how that transaction is probably very different, how developers use options, how that escrow is not a 30-day escrow. So just, just walk us through a deal. Yeah. And lately, I do a lot of Inland Empire, which these days, Inland Empire essentially is infill, most mm-hmm. parts of it. But you're right. So let's say I, I'm lucky enough to source an old church or bowling alley or nursery or warehouse, whatever it is. It's the same conversation with the SARS every time. There's an as-is price, and then there's a major premium, usually, if they'll give enough time for a map to get approved or a zone change or whatever it is. And a lot of times it's significant. So the as-is price might be $4 million, but maybe it's $8.5 million if they give a year and a half to get a map approved. So what I try to negotiate when I'm representing sellers is that it's not just a free option for the buyer, that there's multiple non-refundable deposits along the way. But at the same time, I'm also educating them that the buyer is spending tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands in soft costs, meaning engineering and architecture and consultants and soils, environmental, geotechnical, all that type of stuff. And that's another way we try to sweeten, uh, sweeten it a bit where we negotiate that those due diligence items are assignable to the seller should the buyer at month nine, month 12, whatever, drop out. So they get some deposits and then they also get the due diligence material they can hand to the next buyer. But yeah, that's a decision for every seller. If it's a church, is a good example. I've had a few of those. Do you want the as-is price today or can you give it some time? Now, the hard part, of course, is, oh, you know, we think it'll be 18 months. Well, of course, things get complicated, then it takes longer. Then we're dealing with extensions, etc. Can I backtrack for a second? So I know nothing about this industry and you guys already mentioned a couple words that I don't understand and I'm sure some listeners won't. What is infill? What is scrub brush? Those are those are two I'm going to start with. What is a map? Yeah. That's a good yeah. one too. Go ahead. I mean, I know what a map is, but it's probably not the map that you guys are talking well, about. Well, <laughs> in our world, also, we there's infill and greenfield. If you're talking to like the big builders like KB Home and those types, greenfield is basically where more when you get to the Inland Empire, there's literally just kind of like patches of land here and there. It looks like a checkerboard from an aerial. Infill is, is usually the opposite, right? Whether it's like Tustin or Garden Grove or, you know, anywhere between Corona and, you know, Ventura County, that's almost all infill, unless you're starting to get into the mountains. Is that more of like an industrial type of area or like flatland or? No, it, infill just means where you're basically inserting a new project in an area that already is totally developed. And Got usually you're, you're redeveloping something. Got it. So it's within a development area and Greenfield is kind of. Or yeah, if, you're driving, kind of if you're driving down Sunset Boulevard and Silver Lake and you see an old recycling center, maybe that could be 70-unit apartment building instead. That's in right. development. As far as uh, Greenfield and out in the desert, and by the way, sometimes those deals do fall in my lap, you know, some random land in Antelope Valley or Joshua Tree or wherever. I mean, depending on... I choose deals a lot by uh, listings by sellers. <laughs> at this point, at my right. age, I'm 45. If someone's just nice, I'm like, all right, let's let's do it. Um, so yeah, so that we call it more like selling land by the pound, where it's pretty simple as far as comping and whatnot. You just throw on the MLS and, and assign sometimes loop net, and that's how you sell that. As opposed to the infill stuff that Paul and I are talking about, that's where you're going more to very specific players for that. Right. Leaning on your connections and network. Yeah, we know who the buyers are. Once you get to like 50 units and up, especially, like it's not really, you're usually not putting on like loop net and MLS and all that. Like you know who the players are. Right. It's interesting because when we talk about land, I think the average person thinks it's like, it looks like land when I say scrub brush. It's yeah. just a bunch of weeds. Okay, that's scrub brush. Right. That's what I think. I think of like driving around in the Sherman Oaks Hills and then I just see like a random plot of land and I'm like, ooh, can I buy that? And then put like a 
an Airstream on it, live there. And then my mom's like, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, Ugh. no, I mean, like you're driving the five to, to Northern California, you're driving to Vegas. Like there's plenty of land. Right. There's so much land. Yeah. Yeah. That land is shit. I mean, no offense to that land, but like, well, there's a lot that has to be done to build. On there's that, no right? water so, there. Right. There's no power there. There's, there's nothing there. You don't want to live there unless you're a farmer. But what's interesting about what Bryant said is when he says infill land or land in developed areas, it usually doesn't look like land. It usually looks like you said, like a church, like a recycling plant, like an old warehouse. It essentially, his point is like, whatever's currently on it is not the use that a developer would want. Right. And uh, so therefore to him, or when we talk about it, we call that land. I remember when I was in development in Port Wenimi, I don't know if Bryant, you were involved in this. We had to demolish a hospital, not like a big old hospital, but a hospital because that use wasn't viable there right, anymore. Right. That became land and we built whatever, 40, 50, 60 houses on it. Yeah. And I was involved in a hospital in Inglewood and that was probably my best deal. That was multiple checks. And because I sold it to a developer who then remapped it and sold it in three portions to three different builders. But yeah, I mean, anything that's one or two stories to us is land. And so, and the other thing is that when a developer comes and let's say buys that hospital that Bryant was talking about, the one I was talking or whatever it is, they're not really buying the hospital, they're buying the underlying land, but they right. want to put 50 units of housing, whatever it is, an apartment building. That process, I don't know how familiar you are with that process, but that process could take a year, could take 18 months, it could take two years. So what they're going to want to do with the seller is to say, give me a 18-month escrow. I mean, can you imagine that in residential? Like no one's going to want to wait 18 months. Right. They'll give you deposits along the way. They'll release some of that money. They want that time to get their entitlements from the city. Now, what could happen is at the end of that time, and I don't know how often this happened, I'd love to ask you, Brian, is maybe they fail at getting those entitlements and they don't actually buy the land at the end of those 18 months. That happens, right? Not as much. I mean, because the whole there is always just like a, in a normal house sale, there is the feasibility period, aka option period, due diligence period, whatever you want to call it, which is essentially where the, the deposit's refundable, the initial deposit. So, I mean, they're always trying to get as much as they can. 30 to 45 days is to them is a little short these days, but a 60 to 90 days is what they really like when possible. And that's when they're really trying to flesh out how viable it is that they're going to be able to get this project approved with the city. Now, yeah, between now and when it actually gets approved, if neighbors fight it, et cetera, and they end up having to lose units for more guest parking or trash enclosures or open space or whatever it is, then if they lose a handful of units, well, then we have what's known as a retrade. And it's very common for sellers to come back to the buyer and say, I need a reduction. Or it could be where um, Edison says you need to own, need to underground those poles. That's, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, there's a lot of cost busts that come up. And then the sellers and the buyers, we have three, we call it the famous three-hour retrade meeting where we're going line, line item by line item, having to go through everything. And sometimes you meet in the middle or sometimes one side gives in. So would that be considered like the contingency period? Is there a contingency period? Like to what point are buyers allowed to back out of a deal? Because I imagine there's a lot of information that can come up during yeah. the course of that that would give them reason or pause or... Yeah, usually the first deposit doesn't go non-refundable usually until you know, obviously the end of that, what you're talking about, the feasibility period or contingency period. I mean, and again, developers are trying to get 60 to 90 days. Sometimes it's as little as 30 to 45 days. It's usually not less than 30. But like a lot of times they're engaging soil slash geotechnical environmental. And just to get those consultants out to the site, 
could take two or three weeks. Then they have to finish the report. Then the, the buyer needs time to read the report. So that's why we try to get a decent amount of time. But when they yeah. ask for six months and whatnot, that's a little, a little much, depending on, yeah. Like, and I guess not to belabor the point, but when there's a 18-month escrow for the developer to get their entitlements, if you will, I imagine, Bryant, you're waiting to get your commission for that 18 months. That's yeah, a long and that's time. why, and I like having my niche. But I mean, I have a very large escrow that's a little bit south of 50 million that I've been waiting six years for it to close. Wow. The first three years was with one buyer. The second three years was with another buyer, but extension after extension after extension. And at what point, because obviously my brokerage takes, they pay, pay a decent, they take a decent chunk. Then I'm splitting with a the partner, then taxes. So a lot of times my net is like, let's say one fourth of what the gross commission is. Well, I've had flips I've worked on or, or deals that I've wholesaled a contract within a month where we've made, I've made the same amount. Right. So that's why I always want to do land. I'll always work on at least a handful or maybe a dozen a year that I can kind of do at this point on autopilot. Yeah. But I, I'm kind of leaning more towards recycling what's already out there than fighting tooth and nail to try to get new stuff approved where you're in these very long escrows where at the end of the day, my ROI is, is pretty dwindled when you think of all the phone calls and the retrades and the fighting and the extensions and the this and that. And I almost know too much at this point because as Paul knows, I used to be <laughs> a, a subdivision title officer for seven years. So I'm when I was at Fidelity and Paul, you were at Olson, but I'm problem solving title issues and I'm acting as a concierge where I'm bringing in different consultants and helping it. And then at the end of the deal, after all that, then they're trying to grind my commission again out of nowhere. Right. So it's kind of like, I'm not really, again, the ROI is not that great, but I've been doing it a long time. A lot of deals fall in my lap at this point. I've been a land broker almost 14 years. So a lot of deals fall in my lap through referrals at this point. So I'll always work on them just because I have a passion for it and I have a mission to create new housing. Are the land deals primarily cash or financed or hard money? What does that look like yeah. in financing? So the capital stack, if we're talking about just kind of a deal where it's there's some scale, meaning at least 20, 30 units or more, a lot of times there's what we call an equity partner, which is basically the money partner, whether it's a rich uncle high net worth individual or family office for something a little bit smaller or a more institutional level. So if a large home builder, they would team up with a fund that maybe has pension fund money or whatever in order to finance a project. And then there's sometimes there's debt as well. But, well there's almost always a construction loan at some point. But on the front end, usually they're partnering with an equity source and not it's not as common as a lender. It's pretty hard to find a lender on land. Not impossible but there's not many out there. What's the trend in terms of when we talk about infill development, office buildings are kind of, I wouldn't say on the way out, but they're, uh, they're not so much in need anymore. There's a, what, you know, retail, yeah. you know, they're not building new. What is being converted to multifamily? What, what kind of properties are you looking at that can be converted? Well, the office buildings, like you said, I mean, the two-story ones from the 70s or whatever that are kind of brown and have, they don't really have a lot of windows and whatnot. And that's for like, you know, your little, your CPA might be an insurance type person might be. Those definitely are getting redeveloped, especially like in Orange County or even in, I think I just saw something maybe in Thousand Oaks, Agora Hills, a life-size developer just bought office product like that to redevelop into like lab space, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, everything from outdoor storage where old yards where people would pay to store their RVs 
and whatnot, that type of stuff. So there's developers out there like the Olson Company, City Ventures, Brandywine, Williams Homes, where if you go up and down the Whittier Boulevard corridor or similar type streets, I mean, you just see Garden Grove Boulevard, you just see this kind of over and over and over where they're picking up old churches and preschools and office buildings, outdoor storage to build 50 homes or whatever. And in the heart of Garden Grove and Westminster and those areas, I mean, those are like $900,000 homes, give or take. So um, they do very well. But it is hard, right? Because they're trying to get those long escrows. How are you finding most of your deals? For me, I mean, when you're just starting out, you use whatever software you can, like LandVision, PropStream, or maybe title company where where you're looking at an aerial Google Earth and you're literally just looking for obvious pieces of land. But after a while, you kind of have a trained eye. So if you see a parcel that's three acres, but the existing building footprint is a lot smaller, like it's one-fourth, one-fifth of that, it's mostly surface parking. And if the surface parking looks kind of neglected and the roof looks kind of neglected, then you can, after a while, you start to be able to kind of have a trained eye for land that's not, that has an existing improvement. But yeah, you use software like that to look for deals or just driving around. If you're like, I'm going to be the person for uh, Norwalk or Downey or wherever, I'm going to drive all over Torrance and I'm going to write down deals and then I'm going to chase them. That's one good thing as, as a land broker is if you send letters or cold call, the response rate is usually a lot higher because they're not getting hammered with calls like how single family owners are. Right. Not as much. Yeah. What about like uses like auto body shops or mechanics? Are those hard to convert because of the, the use was kind of dirty? It just all depends on how much they want from the land. I mean, you can remediate anything, meaning do environmental cleanup. So, I mean, the environmental consultant might say, well, it's going to be $500,000 to clean up the site. So it all, it just has to pencil, right? It just has to fit within the budget. That makes sense. So developers, real quick, they run something called a Performa, which is a financial model, and they figure out how much they can pay for the land. And there's various expenses in that. So if the remediation is $3 million and they want, again, it just has to work out numbers-wise. Yeah. And size-wise, too. And you kind of mentioned that because I, I drive up and down Ventura Boulevard and I see lots of uses that are terrible, that clearly need to be, but changed and converted. But they're like, the lots are so small, right? No one wants to build an apartment building with two units. Sure. Well, and a gas, a gas <laughs> right? station in Los Feliz, is, that'll, that could be an apartment building because the rents are so high there, or West Hollywood even, right? I mean, the rents are so high that it makes sense to do that. But like you said, in the Valley and parts of Orange County, it's not really worth it. You might as well just wait for Raising Cane's or Chick-fil-A or whoever to come along and want to build something there. Starbucks. For those Can't little have parcels. enough Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, I want a Starbucks on every corner. <laughs> yeah, I've been working on some retail stuff. It's, it's fun. I like, I like that, those type of things as well. How does that work? Do you have relationships with the retailers themselves? They usually have brokers that are kind of their gatekeepers. Okay. So I was working on a ground lease for a new McDonald's in the Inland Empire that ended up falling through, but I learned a lot on that. But like I, there's a lot of middlemen as far as uh, third party developers that have the relationships with Chick fil A, Raising Canes, and Dutch Brothers and all that. So when I present them a site and they think it has legs, they then go to their potential tenants to see if Chick fil A or whoever says, yeah, we'll, we'll do a store there. And then that's when they'll write the offer and go to contract and buy it if they know they have those tenants lined up. Even something bigger, same thing, like for, for Sprouts or whatever. It's funny. You talk about how challenging your job is. I think we would probably agree that the average agent that sells single-family homes and condos probably is not going to 
end up in the land game. It's complicated. It's something you kind of grew up in. But it's such an important role because you guys are involved in renewing these areas, right? Changing uses from something that isn't necessary anymore to a redevelopment, which is what people want. It solves some of the housing crisis. So it's sort of like, don't you think that it's going to be hard to get people to get it to become land brokers or land agents, but it's a necessary... Some of them, it just happens by default. So for example, if we're talking about something on like Sunset Boulevard or wherever, let's say CBRE or Marcus and Mellotrap or whoever list it. I mean, the more the larger, more robust builders have acquisitions folks, sometimes multiple. And so those folks know that they need to be on the radar of all the CBRE, Marcus Millichap, Colliers, Lean Associates, whatever type guys that are getting those listings. And those types of brokers maybe won't be able to articulate the things that, that I could, but that's probably okay. So, I mean, if you're selling something on Vermont or wherever, Ventura Boulevard, you just need to get the listing. And yeah, it'd, be, it'd help if you actually knew what you're talking about. But if if you have the right deal on the right street, you know, those buyers, they'll figure things out on their end. It just might be a little frustrating when you're dealing with the seller in their 80s and the seller's like, well, what do you mean? They say the retaining wall is going to cost $500,000. Me, I know how to explain that more. Or I could bring in one of my friends to do like a peer review. And as another, a typical broker may be like, I, God, I have no idea what to say. You know, let's just trust them or not trust them. But that's the way the world works. You know, and usually, yeah, if they know to monitor CoStar, LoopNet, and also try to source off-market deals with those commercial brokers. I have one last question for you. What has been your favorite deal and or your least favorite deal? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, my favorite deal is probably, you know, like the one I had mentioned earlier, the hospital in Inglewood, because, I mean, that was probably the most I've made in commissions, yet it was almost the least amount of work, ironically. So that was just timing and just being able to matchmake as far as putting the seller and buyer together. And, and, you know, as a buyer that I had been talking to for many years and I'd even done title for, and so I knew what he wanted and what he was good at. And so it worked out. The worst deal, gosh, I might have to, yeah, I might have to clump some together. Gosh. The ones that don't pay out. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's hard to say. Um, I should have prepared for that one a little bit more, but I I didn't know that was coming. Um, the ones that don't close. Or just right? the worst thing that's happened in a transaction or the most disheartening or the craziest thing. I don't know. Maybe I put those out of my mind um, to my, or my memory. <laughs> I tend to do the same. I tend to do the same. <laughs> yeah. I would just say, you know, working with other brokers, if you're going to co-list or if you're going to take a referral, just try to have everything set out in writing and not trust that everyone's ethical. Right. Because problems come up, huh? Yeah. But how about this? When you do have something bad, happen and you're having a really bad day. I had a broker tell me many years ago, he he said, remember that you're self-employed. So just, if you want to go home, go home. Or go see a matinee, go see a movie. It's interesting to see who's in a movie theater at three o'clock on a Wednesday. Go to the beach, go read a book at a cafe, whatever. I don't know if that sounds naive, but I mean, you always feel better the next day or even three hours later, you feel ready to go. So I, and I'm, cause I did have a bad experience with them. A referring broker, I guess you'd call her, almost exactly a year ago. And it really made me upset. And so I went down to San Clemente. I'm here in Orange County and went to the beach and I was ready to go within three hours ready. And I thought I was like just obliterated for the day. So just if you're having a rough day, we are self-employed at the end of the day. Just take the day off. Yeah. 
That is the beauty of being a real estate agent. You don't have to tell your boss you're going to the beach. There is no boss, you know, (laughs) you're your own boss. That's the best part of it. Awesome. Well, we got a great education on land and land deals and infill and scrub brush. Yes. (laughs) And maps. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for coming on. I'm on LinkedIn if anyone wants to reach out to me. We'll share your information in the show notes and hopefully some realtors can reach out to you when they have a land uh, deal opportunity. Thank All you. right. Thanks for coming on. Bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. I'm Paul with Great Builds. And I'm Sarah with Glen Oaks Escrow. And if you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at larealtorpod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.